0: Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
1: In this episode, Chief Executive Officer and Group Head of BMO Capital Markets, Dan Barclay, hosted BMO experts Michael Gregory, Margaret Karens, and Brian Belsky to explore what may lie ahead for households, businesses, markets, and the economy, and whether a recession is in the cards. Welcome. BMO is excited to host our economic update and discussion around interest rates, inflation, the economy, and what lies ahead. Uh, It's great to see you all joining us today, and uh, great that we could have this opportunity to, to share our current thinking. Uh, since we last had one of these sessions, which uh, feels a little while ago, uh, lots has changed. Uh, if we think about uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the evolution and uh, evolution of COVID and where we've gotten to, uh, some of the outputs around supply chains, commodities, uh, and now a real transition. Uh, as inflation goes up, change in uh, Fed policy uh, around the world, looking at uh, interest rates and where we can go. And now headed into, potentially, uh, a recession. Uh, So this is a great chance for us to get together today uh, and talk about these issues. Uh, We look forward to an engaging discussion today. uh, Joining me, uh, Michael Gregory, uh, our Deputy uh, Chief Economist. uh, Margaret Cairns, uh, Head of Fixed Income Strategy. And Brian Belsky, our Chief Investment Strategist. Uh, With that, why don't we get to uh, the engaging discussion we expect to have today. And, uh, Michael, why don't you give us our current thoughts uh, around... Uh, the global economies and the issues
2: that you're focused on. Sure thing. Well, good morning, everyone. All right. So to answer the question, Dan, what lies ahead, there's one overarching theme. It is the fact that core inflation, uh, inflation broadly, is proving to be more stubborn than expected. Now, headline inflation has been going down over the past couple of months, uh, helped by lower oil prices, and that should continue in the months ahead. But it's really the fact that the food costs continue to escalate amid persistently high core inflation and wage growth. Now, the genesis, as we all know, to this problem was the combination of constrained supply and strong demand. Supply was constrained first by the pandemic and, as you mentioned, then by the war in Ukraine. And then demand has has been charged up. Uh, First, by pent-up spending, but more importantly, from massive amounts of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus. And it's quite frankly, both the Bank of Canada and the Fed and other uh, central banks around the world are now attempting to remove that monetary stimulus by raising policy rates, in some cases shrinking their balance sheets, to try to dampen demand, bring demand and supply back in better balance, and hopefully dampen inflation. We've seen both the Bank of Canada and the Fed so far have have raised rates quite aggressively, both by 300 basis points, and, and it, you know, and because you know core inflation and wage growth continue to remain quite stubborn, we expect that tightening uh, to uh, continue. In fact, in in the wake of recent uh, uh, inflation readings and and last week's sort of hawkish Fed hike, we've actually adjusted our own projections for for policy rates. We, we raised the uh, the Fed funds projection by 75 basis points to four and a half to four and three quarters, and the Bank of Canada uh, policy rate by 25 basis points to 4%. Now, uh, kind of an interesting development there. You know, up until now, the Bank of Canada has been as aggressive or even more aggressive than the Fed in terms of uh, tightening policy. Uh, but now we think going forward, the Bank of Canada is going to be a little bit more cautious with uh, uh, you know, Canadian households flirting with record high debt burdens and a looming surge of uh, higher mortgage payments as a lot of these variable rate mortgages that were done months ago uh, uh, get reset. Now, when you start talking about four handles on policy rates, we think that that becomes the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. We've made adjustments to our economic forecast. We now expect on both sides of the border, growth will grind to a halt Next year, we're looking for zero growth on average for both the Canadian and U.S. economies. And in fact, in the early part of next year, we're looking for a couple consecutive quarters of negative growth. This time, though, we think it will be broad enough so that uh, it it will probably be considered a recession. Uh, Obviously, on both sides of the border, the the, the arbiters of recessions is the National Bureau of Economic Research in the U.S. It is uh, the C.D. Howe Institute. Uh, In Canada. And we do think with time that they will take those negative quarters we are expecting uh, uh, in the first half of next year. And we'll end up calling it a a mile, but nevertheless a a recession. Keep in mind though, two consecutive quarters by definition is not necessarily a recession. The first half of this year, we had that in the US. That wasn't a recession. And we had it, in fact, in the first half of 2015, owing to the collapse in oil prices. That was not a recession. Uh, So again, you know, we think it will be broad. We'll see it across many sectors and, and both with spending and income. All right. So uh, there are some silver linings here, though, uh, in the fact that, uh, you know, Canadian uh, and U.S. households are still, you know, uh, have a lot of uh, uh, accumulated excess savings and, and there still is some pent up demand, particularly for services. So we think those supports will, will keep the recession short and shallow and, and, and lay the groundwork for recovery in the second half. Of, uh, of, of, of this year. Now, we've also raised our forecast for, for the unemployment rates. As expected, You, you know we look for uh, uh, the jobless rate to peak at 5% in the U.S., around 6.5% in Canada. But what we really didn't make any changes lately to our forecast is on the inflation side. We still have in, uh, the key metrics running slightly above 3% by the end of next year basically the additional inflation damper provided by uh uh you know the recession uh the mild recession uh is is this, is this offset by the fact on the ground now we have a lot more inflation momentum because of stubborn core inflation and and wage growth and this is basically a wash uh and in fact with, with inflation not expected at least in our own view to get below th- uh, 3% by the end of the next year that also you know suggests to us that once peaking, policy rates will not start uh, falling uh, or being cut until uh, uh, 2024, but that also emphasizes where the net risk lies. That lies in the fact that we could get even higher policy rates, a deeper recession, and faster disinflation, where we actually get inflation falling uh, to 2% uh, next year. Now, one more thing I wanted to to, uh, just mention just before we we turn it back to you, Dan, is, is so far, you know, the catalyst for more central bank tightening, uh, uh, potentially more aggressive central bank tightening, is the stubbornness of inflation. Well, there's another reason why central banks may, you know, continue tightening, if not tighten aggressively. It is what happens on the fiscal policy front. And, and we've seen what's been unfolding over the past uh, uh, several days uh, in the UK, where, where uh, fiscal policy there has taken a very uh, stimulative tack. Uh, and and uh, with uh, uh, the uh, the freezing of, of of energy prices, energy bills, quite frankly, uh, avoiding that 80% hike, as well as the largest tax cut uh, the UK has seen in some 50 years. Now, you know, governments, of course, politicians, you know, they they, they do want to do something to try to offset the ravages of inflation and try to offset the risk of recession. But there's only limited scope can that can you can do that within. Uh, Until you start moving against what monetary policy is trying to do, the Bank of England has been raising policy rates to try to tamp down inflation. Yet, you know, this kind of uh, fiscal stimulus uh, is going to work against that. And it's this kind of fiscal policy moving in one direction, monetary policy moving in another, that of course has contributed to the the, the weakness we've seen in the in in the British pound, hitting uh, record lows against the uh, the dollar. And of course, you know, the, the spike we've seen. In, in uh, uh, long term interest rates in the UK uh, spiking more than 100 basis points, although with the Bank of England now coming in to uh, provide some stability uh, to that market, it's as if you know we've seen and some commentators have referred to re- referred to it as the return of the bond vigilantes, in which case fiscal profligacy is punished by higher bond yields. And quite frankly, in an environment where uh, you know inflation is the number one issue. Central banks are, are raising policy rates to try to mitigate that. You know, uh, I do think, in fact, we will see that, and I think it's probably a warning for governments around the world. There's a limited scope for, 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 for uh, uh, you know, trying to mitigate inflation, try to mitigate the risk of inflation before you, too, suffer the wrath of the bond vigilantes. I'll leave, turn the things back to you, Dan. That's great, Michael. Uh... One of the things that uh, I was struck,
1: uh, obviously, there's a balance between this monetary and fiscal policy, the balance between curbing inflation and introducing a recession. Um, You're the economist. Take us through the thesis as to why we need to keep inflation low. I think we all understand near-term pocketbook issues, but I think fundamentally there's a a much deeper uh, discussion for the
2: economy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you when you you look at, firstly, it, it is a is a empirical fact that you know countries with, with with high rates of inflation tend to have poor economic outcomes, and those with uh, relatively stable inflation, low inflation, have have you know higher economic outcomes over time. So, you know, from a long term perspective, it promotes growth. But you, you can see why in uh, you know uh, high inflation over time, it erodes wealth. It, you know, erodes incomes, as you mentioned, even uh, in, in the short term, but it also creates distortions in the way in which businesses invest uh, the way individuals, you know, uh, uh, you know, purchase assets where, you know, trying to mitigate inflation or accounting for it or planning for it becomes a a, a paramount part of, of an investment decision. And that is why, you know, central banks, you know, uh, you know, believe that we cannot let get inflation get out of hand. We can't let high inflation, you know, uh, factor into higher inflation expectations because that gets very hard to try to remedy just you know uh, go back to what paul volcker had to do and other central banks had to do uh, to try to arrest the kind of inflation that came out of the 1960s and the 1970s so the, the idea is now we're going to take some pain now and and in fact they call it pain you know Powell uses that p word and and it's not normal where where you see central bankers actually talk about this is going to hurt but you know what if we have to let uh do more down the road that, that that pain will even be greater so it's either a little bit of pain now or a lot of pain later and and they're taking the tack we can we can try to minimize the pain now but there will be pain and i think that is uh what we will be seeing now as we move forward into next year
1: speaking of uh volatility and pain uh, and excesses in the economy let's talk about housing for a minute uh, when we think, uh, you know, particularly in Canada, I think various places across the world, uh, we've had enormous uh, price uh, increases in the last couple of years through COVID, uh, some real change in buying behavior, et cetera. Um, what do we think is going to happen to housing uh, in the near, uh, in the near to medium term, uh, around
2: prices and some of the valuation issues that we've seen in recent memory? Uh, good, good question. And in fact, I kind of think housing is a little bit of that canary in the coal mine. Of 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 uh, you know what you know could be in store if 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 inflation really got out of hand in the broader economy. Uh, obviously, we've seen uh, mortgage rates go up uh, on you know around the world, but particularly both in Canada and the United States. And we've seen the impact that's had on demand. Uh, demand has fallen off. Uh, in you know we were seeing the kind of uh, at least in Canada the way in which demand has fallen off is a kind of decline you would normally expect to see in recessions. And in fact, I think it's fair to say that the housing market is, in fact, in a recession. And we're beginning to see that lack of demand now beginning to, uh, uh, you know, be reflected in lower prices. You know, in Canada, since prices had their last peak in, in, in February, we're down about 7 percent. We think that, you know, peak to trough, you know, we, we will get about a 20 percent decline uh, in, in prices on an, on a nationwide basis, probably 10 to 15 percent peak to trough. Uh, in 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 the u s. And uh, you know the good news, is that uh, that that sets up better affordability, particularly once interest rates start falling, and they will fall once once markets get a whiff that, that the worst is over from the, uh, the from the inflation perspective, you know, and then rate cuts start to be priced in. We're gonna have a situation with lower priced homes, with uh, you know uh, declining borrowing costs, and I think housing will will sort of bounce back, particularly given at least in Canada, fundamentally supported by by immigration inflows, and on both sides. Of the borders by by you know un, you know millennial millennial demand. That's great.
1: Well, why don't we transition to Margaret? Margaret, uh, overall, when you think about uh, what you're telling your clients today uh, about fixed strategy, uh, take us through your thoughts and the issues you're looking at, please.
3: Sure. I think uh, Dan, as as Michael mentioned, the risk here is toward more tightening rather than less tightening, and the U.S. rate market has swiftly repriced to higher yields. Overnight, we did see (coughs) 10s cross 4% as the Fed is solidly hawkish. The market narrative now continues to remain focused on just how high two-year yields will go in this type of environment. And we do think that there's room for twos to run all the way up to what the Fed is telling us they expect for the Fed Fund's effective rate for next year. Which is 460. And this is really based on their intention to hold rates in restrictive territory and not just restrictive, but meaningfully restrictive for as long as it takes to contain inflation and get it back to the 2% level. So there are really three main implications uh, for us, for US Treasuries. And the first is that. The Fed's higher for longer narrative should put a floor under two-year yields, which they can't rally through even if the economy or when the economy continues to slow, or I should say as the economy continues to slow. So we remain bearish on the front end. I think that the Fed's huge change in their dot plot from June to December, where of course they revised the year-end Funds projection up by 100 basis points and uh, the terminal rate up by 80 basis points also puts a, le- a level of risk premium into the front end because people, investors, are questioning whether or not we might see another revision next year if they remain behind the inflation curve. So that's really the first implication a floor under two year yields. Secondly, 10 year yields will react to the slowing economy. And what that means for us is that while we're hovering around 4% right now, they will rally back down to closer to 3% as the economy slows. And this really keeps our 210s deep inversion trade intact. Uh, The idea that the Fed continues to push really hard on this higher for longer narrative uh, and that they'll fight inflation at any cost really implies also that they might keep rates high for too long. Just as they stayed at the party on the other side uh, for too long, we think that that's really the risk on this front and that the economy could slow down much more than they clearly want. And that's really based on them, their message of sort of waiting to see the the reverse of the the whites of the eyes of inflation. Now they wanna see the whites of the eyes of contained inflation. So those are the three risks that we see based on the Fed's messaging. Uh, But in the very near term, uh, we wouldn't stand in front of the bearish momentum that's going on in the market. We've got a lot going on globally that is uh, pushing yields across the curve, out through tens, I should say, uh, well through the 4% level in the front end. Liquidity is very thin. Uncertainty is high, uh, much higher than in the past, and I think the market will begin to price a a reversal in the Fed's meaningly uh, restrictive stance at some point next year. And and at that point, the trade will switch from being this deep inversion trade where we expect to test the negative 57, 58 levels of just a few weeks ago and go all the way to negative 75. But the next trade next year will be the opposite. It will be the the bull uh, steepening trade. And uh, that's a very, very different trade where twos will rally down at some point, reflecting, you know, as Michael said, the Fed could be reversing course in 2024, the maturity of the two years well within the 2024 um, timeframe. And so we should get a little bit of pricing of that sometime next year. It's not today's story, but that will be the next big narrative driving the market and, and the trade that we're watching for. Uh, we, I think we won't see it until we get Fed messaging uh, changing uh, off of this very, very, very uh, high for long type of message. In credit, we did see credit start to move a little bit this week. We are we remain um, negative on credit spreads. We do think they have the potential to widen out 15 basis points in the near term, and and could be. I would put the risk on that to being wider than uh, we currently expect uh, right now. Uh, Credit has been lagging the sell-off in equities and, of course, the sell-off in treasuries as well. So we think they have some catching up to do as we enter into a weakening economy, a recessionary environment. And, of course, uh, along with that, you have a a credit downgrade cycle. Um, So I can pass it back to Dan if you have any questions. Well,
1: why don't we, uh, Margaret, why don't we jump into the obvious one? We say higher for longer, uh, and I'm sure that uh, that's got a a wide band of what longer means, but why don't you share with them what we think that that feels like for when the Fed will rise, the signals we'll see uh, in the economy, but how long is longer uh, Mm -hmm. in your mind?
3: So in the past, the Fed typically reacted to forward expectations for inflation based on the monetary policy that they had implemented. So if they raise rates by 300 basis points or 400 basis points, they would look forward a year or 18 months expecting inflation to come down and the economy to slow. This time, I think they're a little bit more worried and they won't be reacting as much to their forward expectations, but rather waiting to see inflation actually printing down closer and closer to their 2% level. So we're expecting them to hold at least through next year. Whether or not they'll be able to do that, um, of course, is questionable as we, of course, wait to see what the uh, employment situation looks like and how the economic data comes in. But I think that they are going to try to Hold as long as they possibly can because they want to avoid the mistakes that were made in the 70s, where you know they they went they paused and then had a, had to restart again. So the risk is, I think that they would rather overshoot on fighting inflation here rather than undershoot. So we would expect you know, higher for longer to last at least through next year. Again, there will be periods where the market questions that and their resolve. Even I think in the backdrop of what's going on overseas overnight, We are seeing people question whether or not the Fed will uh, take a little breather here. We do not think so. I think that would be a mistake. Uh, So they are going to stick to their narrative. And for us, it's really until something big breaks, we're already seeing certain things break, but their tolerance for what breaks is much higher, much, much higher. In fact, according to them, they will basically uh, be able to, or are willing to accept any level of pain in order to get inflation under control because you cannot have a healthy economy without price stability. Um, Margaret, what about
1: on currencies? The U.S. dollar is very strong on a global basis. Uh, we have seen you know, preemptive rate rises or leadership out of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, is that a sustainable outperformance the U.S. dollar or is it, uh, is it temporary?
3: So we think that we're about 50-50, which isn't really helpful. Um, <laughs> whether the whether we're near the, or at the, the kind of the blow-off top in the U.S. dollar. Um, when the U.S. dollar uh, top is in and the cycle turns, I think CAD will be viewed as quality um, and, and will start to perform. Uh, obviously, oil has an impact on uh, CAD. It's asymmetric. So, you know, we're watching that, but we do think, that, you know, money markets do have the Fed going in, as Michael said, uh, you know, expectations are, are the pretty consensus across the board in that 450, 475 range. Um, and so, you know, I think the BOC, like Michael said, stopping at around 4% is right. Uh, we don't think that if the Fed continues to go, the BOC will, um, you know, continue to move along with them. Our call for, I think, three-month U.S. dollar CAD is 133. Um, but probably push it to 135 when our FX team uh, revises that. In, in Europe, we have been very negative on European currencies, negative on sterling for some time, and continue to remain negative even despite the massive moves. And that's really because we've got winter coming in in Europe and, of course, the, um, the energy crisis and whatnot. Um, the target for uh, Great British Pound, U.S. dollar, is 104, uh, pretty close to that uh, overnight overnight. But, you know, we wouldn't rule out a test of parity, uh, given what's going on.
1: Wow, that's a, uh, that is a very big change uh, in a relatively short amount of time. Well, Margaret, thank you for that. Let's move over to Brian. Uh, Brian, you are, uh, have been in, uh, on the record quite boldly for a while. Uh, you continue to be bold, and uh, yet the market has had enormous gyrations this year. So why don't you take us through your current thinking, uh, what you're hearing from uh, investors in the marketplace And uh, in particular, what do you think are the places you should be investing uh, on the equity side
4: right now? Thanks, Dan. And with much humility, it has been tough to be a bull. And uh, the reason why we've remained bullish, I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about uh, where you should be invested now and then kind of give you uh, a three to five year view on this return to normalcy. Uh, something that we actually uh, stole from you, Dan, in terms of this transition and turn to normalcy as we kind of transition, I think, and how the u s and Canada we actually believe will lead that so let's let 's start off with number one here here 's why we were wrong um, i've had the very good fortune of of doing this job for a long time, and this is my thirty third year on Wall Street. And I learned, the, I learned the job as an analyst. I learned the job coming out of undergrad with an accounting and finance degree. And I learned how to dive into uh, financial statements at a very young age. Started in the business in the late 80s, early 90s. When you got out of the 80s, uh, where it was all about restructuring charges and continuing operations. And where are you going to charge? You're going to charge off the balance sheet. You're going to charge off the income statement. And so why I'm starting with that, notion, Dan, is that never in my 30, 30, 33 years in business have I seen the type of balance sheet strength, cash flow consistency and earning stability ever from small, medium and large cap publicly traded companies that I'm seeing right now. Further to that, we have the very good fortune uh, to travel around the country, uh, both the US and, and Canada especially the U.S., to different regions and speak with small and medium private companies. And they remain quite positive, even through this storm that really uh, intensified uh, in the February, March, April timeframe. We met with several clients in summer, and we just did another swing here in September. And our clients remain bullish. What does that tell you? It tells you and tells me that the fundamental construct of both the U.S., in Canadian markets from a bottoms-up basis remains very strong. Now, obviously, we've had a massive shift with respect uh, to what's happening in terms of how we're valuing companies, what the discount rates are, what we're using for cash flow, all of this. But there's a means to an end with respect to this, and it's really the return to normalcy over the next three to five years. 2022 will obviously be this shakeout period, this control-out-delete where we're shocking the system. And I'm going to use the word unprecedented. What we've incurred on, on a societal basis and on a business basis has been unprecedented the last couple of years. We basically went to zero interest rates. We kept the world alive. We kept business alive. We had unbelievable returns in both the bond market and the stock market the last couple of years. Now it's on to shock and awe To kind of force us to get back into normalcy, which I thought 2022 was going to be. And then along came the war and then along came the word stubborn. Michael Gregory used it in terms of of inflation and the inflation piece of it has been more sticky and has been more stubborn than than what we thought. Now, I'm not an economist, uh, but we're starting to see the 12 month forward inflation expectations drop pretty quickly. Now, remember, the the formula for investing is stocks, lead earnings, which lead the economy. Stocks, lead earnings, which lead the economy. Stock market's already gone down 25%, which has already told you that we're going to have a recession. The bond, the bond yield's inverted, so we're going to have a recession. It's first half of the year. Our great economics department is now on, on track with that. So we've already kind of discounted that. We believe on a near-term basis the stock market actually has been an amazing discounting function and has done its job, believe it or not. Now, what does that mean? Well, it took out the froth. What's the froth? I like to call it the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's both Old Testament and New Testament. If you can follow me, who's the Four Horsemen in the Apocalypse? Kathy Woodstocks. No, no dis, no disrespect there. Number two, the meme stocks, not real investments. Number three, spacs, and number four, my favorite, starts in a bit and ends in a coin. So we took that out. Then we went to the high. <clears throat> then we went to the high multiple names. Then we went to the high growth names. Then we went to the fangs, and then we went to the leaders, Dan. We went to the leaders, which was energy. When they took energy out in May, I felt with the that was the bottom. Markets rallied. We've had a bit of a bounce. Then recently, they took out energy again, the leader. So when you start to see the, the leaders and the generals get taken out, that, I believe, is starting to see the bottom. Now we've seen this exacerbated moves the last couple of weeks, and not to pick on the currency people, but it always tends to be the bonds and the currency people that, that mess this up. I remember 1997, 1998, somehow this, this is the shakeout. This is the shakeout in every single thing that we see from a sentiment perspective. As you mentioned in your beginning comments, Dan, I've been on the road basically every day since, since Labor Day. I've been around the world and clients are more bearish right now than they were in 2008. Uh, Some of them are more bearish than they were in 2000 uh, toward the top uh, of the the tech market. That, to me, from a sentiment basis, especially the cash on hand that we've seen from the majority of our institutional clients, means that a bounce is coming because the majority of our clients are not positioned for any change on the upside. So we think a bounce is going to happen in the fourth quarter. It's going to be very strong, and I'll use the unprecedented coin. We have so much pent up pent-up demand for stocks and pent-up demand for positive performance. Per Margaret's comments, if rates are going to be going down next year, markets looking at that, remember, stocks lead earnings lead the economy. I think that's why we could see a very big bounce based on the strong bottom up fundamentals, but looking forward with respect to lower rates and the impending fallback of inflation. That's why we're going to get a bounce in the fourth quarter. What do you invest in now? I like to call it the cross-section of growth and value. So opportunistic growth stocks in the value index and attractively valued uh, uh, value growth stocks in the uh, value, value growth stocks in the growth index. So again, wh- where does that take us in America? It takes us in stocks like communication services, financials, um, and healthcare. In Canada, it's still consumer discretionary, it's still parts of energy in its financials. I think Canada actually has a very good chance to outperform the U.S. in the fourth quarter because of the value proposition that it takes. So where do we go from here? I call it Consistency Canada and Fortress America. For my 10 years at BMO, we've been explicitly negative emerging markets. We've been very negative on on Europe. And now we're starting to see that come to, obviously, at the end of this, the fruition. I believe that non-Canadian and non-U.S. assets are coming back to the US, coming back to Canada, meaning global investors are gonna invest in North America, which they'll be paying for stability. Now, again, I'm gonna I'll will end where I started in terms of cash flow, earning stability, and balance sheet strength, which also means debt to equity. I've never seen this in my 30 plus years on the business stand. That's what keeps us bullish, and that's why I think it's gonna lead the transition over the next few years as we transition to normalize interest rates, normalize stock market performance, and normalize GDP. And with that, I'll hand it back to you. Uh, Well, always uh,
1: an enlightening thought process uh, and, uh, interesting. a little contrition at the beginning. That's uh, uh, good on you. Uh, You've been very vocal and and very bold. Um, When you think about if someone was going to invest in a particular sector right now, uh, what sector would you prefer, right, of all of the, you know, 12 majors or 13 major sectors? Which one is your favorite at this
4: moment? We love financials, Dan. We love it not just because we work for one, but because we love financials. Now, financials should be doing better in a rising rate environment. And we think the, especially the the, the banks in Canada that are centered more on U.S. because that's where the growth is going to be coming from. Um, and then also the money center banks in the U.S. because of the multidivisional assets it's going to be a tough kind of period here, near term, on the investment bank slash capital market side of things. But the commercial bank and the wealth management side of businesses look very good. And I think a lot of a lot of analysts out there uh, are going to miss the fact that that we've had higher interest rates. And in some of the broker, uh, in the brokerage business is very good because, believe it or not, people still buy on margin. And and that's going to be a bit of a uh, an uptick with respect to earnings on the wealth management side. I would also say secondarily, Dan that. There seems to be a lot of, of uh, underinvested capital with respect to healthcare, and I, which is amazing to me given the fact of what what the vaccine was able to do. But healthcare, uh, from a valuation perspective, and where cash is especially in biotechs and some of the drugs and some of the devices, looks very interesting to us. Uh, and from the growth proposal, kind of reminds me back to when healthcare coming out of the '94 valuation lows, uh, very similar in terms of the the makeup, in terms of the sector. So I think there's a lot of opportunity there. We've had uh, an exceptional call today. Uh, I
1: want to thank Michael, Brian and Margaret uh, for your insights uh, and the rest of our uh, research and investing teams. Uh, We're obviously in a period of high uncertainty. uh, I would say one of the highest in my career uh, where the predictability of the future seems low. Uh, But I think Brian gave some very good insights, as did Margaret, around uh, the return of normalcy will come and uh, cycles and change uh, while difficult. Um, One of the things for our clients, BMO is here to help. Uh, We're here to stand by you and support you in your needs. Uh, If there's things uh, where you'd like deeper insights or uh, more information, please reach out uh, to your BMO Relationship Manager, your BMO Connection. Uh, And a reminder that we have extensive research uh, and topics out. Uh, through our various research portals, uh, whether that's our podcasts, uh, our market access, our, our research. Uh, please access that to help you in this time of uncertainty as you look forward. We thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, I thank my colleagues uh, for their great insights as we go forward. And uh, we look forward to uh, continuing to support our clients in their business. And uh, thank you for spending your time with us today. Uh, that's all. And uh, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com slash legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit com slash public dash disclosure slash.